So good morning. It's good to see all the rest of you as well. Uh, nice to be here with you today. As Andy said, we're continuing in our series from the letter of James. So this letter was originally written to Jewish believers who were part of the, the, the church that had just been born. And today, it is incredible to think that this God-inspired letter is directed at us, at us who are believers in Edinburgh in 2023, and are also part of the church, that big church with a capital C. And then, as now, I think it is important to acknowledge <clears throat> that although it's directed to us as believers, it's also directed to us as sinners. Have you ever thought that churches are places that collect sinners? Our sinful nature is no different to anyone else's. The only difference is that we recognize it. We recognize that nature and we acknowledge that it's only by believing in the death of Jesus Christ and in his resurrection that that sinful nature can be addressed, that that can be defeated and that we can enter into a relationship with God and find the true purpose of our lives, the true meaning of why we're here. It stands to reason then that churches aren't ever going to be places of perfection, if you didn't already know that, where nothing ever goes wrong, where everyone is perfect, but rather there are places where wrongs and imperfections, whatever those might be, they're brought out into the open. They're confronted, they're addressed, they're dealt with together. And all of that is done in response to what? In response to the grace that we have experienced and we have received because of what Jesus has done. Just let that sink in for a wee minute. We've been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And our response to that is one of amazement, of wonder, of acceptance, and of faith. And our ongoing desire then is to become more and more like Jesus, to grow more and more like him. And so any obedience that we act on in everyday life, it's in response, entirely in response to that, isn't it? It's in response to what Jesus has done. It's not us trying to earn something. We've been given it. It's our response to that incredible message of grace and what Jesus did. So by faith, we receive that free gift of grace and so embark on a life of growing day by day by day in Christ-likeness. And that idea of growing in Christ-likeness, both individually and collectively, that's the motivation behind this letter that James wrote. It is very practical, it is very blunt, it is very clear, it is very challenging, but the motivation is growing in Christ-likeness. The motivation is how can we respond to what Jesus has done for us? This is a, a family endeavor. Do you know in the, in the short letter, it, James says 11 times, dear brothers and sisters, 11 times? Do you think he's trying to make a point? We're all in this together. We are all at different stages. We're different ages. 
But my goodness, we can still learn from each other, can't we? We can still challenge each other. We can still encourage each other. The reality is we all need each other. We all need each other. We are God's gift to one another. And growing in Christ-likeness doesn't just happen. It requires a choice. It requires action. It requires commitment. And it requires recognition that this is a lifelong thing. And so far in our journey through James, we've been encouraged to grow in, in Christ-likeness by embracing an invitation to different things. It's like James is giving us a little bit of a toolkit in order to see how can we act on that desire to grow in Christ-likeness just in the reality of everyday life. So we've been invited to perseverance as opposed to giving up. We've been invited to humility as opposed to pride, to prayer as opposed, as opposed to self-reliance, to wholeness as opposed to selfishness, to peace as opposed to conflict, to kindness as opposed to judgment. That's a good little toolkit, isn't it, isn't it to be working on? And today our invitation is to fairness. Fairness as opposed to favoritism. Fairness is to treat everyone the same. Fairness is to respond according to a need. Favoritism, on the other hand, is to give preference to one person or group over others with equal claims. Favoritism is not fairness. I think other words that we use in this context of thinking of favoritism are discrimination, prejudice, racism, chauvinism, bigotry. And when we think of all those words, it's, it is too easy to think, that really doesn't apply to me. I'm not too bad, actually. I think a better approach to adopt is to say, Lord, what are you trying to say to me? I do want to grow in Christ-likeness. I do want to become more like Jesus. I do want the reality of your word to live in me. What are you saying to me today in this very moment? Where do you want me to grow in Christ-likeness? That whole subject of favoritism, of prejudice, there was a time when it really hit me between the eyes in my own life. I worked in the oil industry. I'd come through a graduate training program. I was on a fast-track leadership program. And all the circumstances around had, had, well, I don't know if it was intentional or not, but it certainly given me the feeling that I was actually a bit better than other people. And that's, that's probably fairly standard in society at large, isn't it? So I was a graduate, I was white, I was British, I spoke English. And it really hit me whenever I started sitting around tables with people from different nationalities different skin colors, different approaches, different languages. It was a real awakening for me, I must say, recognizing, recognizing that everybody was created in God's image. Nobody was any better than anybody else. And there were lots of situations where this really hit me, but one probably very, one that I keep thinking back to was when I was on a visit in West Africa, in, in Senegal, and a French 
guy who didn't have very much at all, but he invited me to come with him. Maybe, maybe I was very trusting at that time, but I did go with him. And we walked for about an hour out into the bush. I, didn't, I really didn't quite know where I was going. But whenever we got there, he showed me with the biggest sense of pride, the biggest smile on his face, this small banana plantation that he had cultivated, that he had grown himself. And he said, I was the first white person to ever be there. And I think in that moment, I saw this man's value in his work, this man's sense of dignity in what he is doing is every bit as valuable as mine. He wasn't going on flying transatlantic flights. He wasn't sitting around tables in big headquarter uh, company buildings. But that sense of equality was just so stark. And that's something I keep coming back to. And that, for me, continues to be a reminder that unconscious bias is there for all of us. It, re it really is, just because of, I guess, where we've grown up. And that, it's not okay, but it, it's okay because it's been done to us, but it's not okay just to let it be there. How do we mitigate against it? And that's where the reality of God's Word comes alive. That's where we can ask Him, Lord, where do you want to speak to me? So, let's read from James chapter 2. The first 13 verses. My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, if you favor some people over others? For example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who's poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but if you say to the poor one, you can stand over there or, or else sit on the floor. Well, doesn't this discrimination show your judgments are guided by evil motives? Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor? in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you dishonor the poor. Isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? Yes, indeed, it is good when you obey the royal law as found in the scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you favor some people over others, you're committing a sin. You're guilty of breaking the law. For the person who keeps all of the law except one is as guilty as a person who's broken all of God's laws. For the same God who said you must not commit adultery also said you must not commit murder. So if you murder someone but do not commit adultery, you've still broken the law. So whatever you say, whatever you do, Remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. Let's pray for a minute. Father, thank you for your word. Forgive us when we take it for granted. Your word alive in this moment by your spirit to each of us. Will you provoke us? Will you prompt us? 
Will you show us where it is you want to see us progress in our life of Christ-likeness? We thank you for your patience with us and your desire for our best. Help us to respond in obedience today, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? It's just as well he started with my dear brothers and sisters, that reminder of his loving approach. James is a loving, was a loving pastor, and part of being loving means being candid. Part of being loving means confronting what isn't right. It means, it means putting it out there. In verse 9, he goes on to say, but if you favor some people over others, you're committing a sin. You're guilty of breaking the law. So I think the message then and now is pretty clear. Favoritism was present amongst the believers in some shape or form. And favoritism is wrong. And I don't think it's any different today. It's wrong because it's guided by evil motives, as we see in verse 4. Often the judgments we make about other people, they're designed to benefit us, ultimately, if we're honest. We're placing value on incidentals, on, on externals, to the detriment of the actual person themselves. James's illustration points out that we look at wealth, we look at clothing, we look at jewelry, at cleanliness, and, and make a judgment call based on those external factors. And the same could be said for physical appearance, for personalities, for education, for employment, for so many other things. And judging by these externals objectifies the, the individual person, doesn't it? It objectifies the person that we favor as well as those that we don't. Their humanity and their associated dignity is down here. It's very much secondary. And ultimately, as James says in verse 6, we dishonor them. We dishonor them as children of God, as those made in the image of God. Now, this practice of making judgments and relying on those individual judgments is pretty standard operating practice in our individualistic society today, isn't it? It is pretty much the way things are done. I think because of that, we need to recognize that if we're trying to move against that, it's not necessarily going to be easy or straightforward. But because it is part of the individual society, it doesn't make it right. It's not, it's not the way to grow in Christ-likeness. It's Jesus' standards and Jesus' example that must inform how we live. I think that's what James means when he says, faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, it's living with that as our reality, as the lens that we look through. So if Jesus reigns supreme in our lives, then our aim is to treat others how Jesus would treat them. And we can find out the reality of that again from this incredible gift of, of God's Word to us. Our aim is to continually grow both in our understanding and practical outworking of what that actually is because we're interacting with people day in, day out, aren't we? We've got that opportunity day in, 
day out. So we can see that James is, is pretty, pretty blunt. He doesn't beat around the bush. He's clearly saying favoritism is not good. And favoritism still is ingrained in human nature for all of us. So how do we seek to replace that favoritism instead with fairness? Well, thankfully, as well as pointing out the problem, James also gives us some pointers as to how to address it. Firstly, we're to consider the poor in this world. And it has been great to hear from Adum and Melissa today to, to hear some of that reality and just to have it, even some of that imagery, right in our minds. So there are poor in India, but there are poor in Edinburgh too. That's a broad term to describe those who are destitute, those who are overlooked, those who are marginalized, those who are forgotten, those who are misunderstood. These are people who are at the bottom of the pile in terms of societal favoritism shown by the world at large. They're right down here. They don't matter as much as people up here. It's always the poor and disadvantaged who suffer. Always. So if we're seeking to show fairness, if we're seeking to grow in Christ-likeness, then wherever there's a need, there's an obligation on our part to extend love based on that need, not based on what they're wearing or where they live or anything else, based on that need in order to alleviate that need. We've already spoken about following Jesus' example and uh, we read, though Jesus was rich, he became poor for our sakes. He's setting that example then too. And he continually identified with the poor and marginalized throughout all of his life on earth. That's who he was with. So an invitation to fairness then is an invitation to be incessantly on the side of the poor, the underprivileged, the disadvantaged, and the oppressed. And to do this is to identify with the very heart of God as revealed throughout the whole sweep of Scripture. Listen to these words, for example, from, from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, right at the start, right at the start of the Bible. In chapter 10, we read, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and Lord of lords. He's the great God, the mighty and awesome God who shows no partiality and cannot be bribed. He ensures that orphans and widows receive justice. He shows love for the foreigners living among you and gives them food and clothing. So you too must show love for foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in the land of Egypt. What other advice then can we find from James on the subject of replacing favoritism with fairness? So we've had a look at the poor in this world. And next, James actually widens the scope of our invitation to fairness by, by reminding us of this. He says, it is good when you obey the royal law as found in Scripture. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. And we know from Jesus teaching that our neighbor can be anybody. So that's a pretty wide scope, isn't it? Anybody that we come in contact with. So how do we intentionally show fairness then in those everyday situations with people that we're in contact with? 
And I think part of the answer lies in the answer to the question, how do we love ourselves? Because the encouragement is, love your neighbor as yourself. So how do we love ourselves? So I think knowing that enables us, at least gives us a start as to how to love others. How do we love ourselves? I think loving ourselves is less about emotion and more about care and attention. How have we loved ourselves this morning? We've washed ourselves. We've fed ourselves. We've clothed ourselves. We exercise ourselves. We look after ourselves. We rest ourselves. I think simply put, we just we look after ourselves, don't we? Isn't that what loving ourselves is? We pay attention to the smallest indicator of wellness and we act on that accordingly. We love ourselves too by discovering what is God's purpose for our lives? How does he want to use us? What has he given to us in terms of resource, in terms of ability, in terms of influence? How does he want to bless others through those things that he's given to us? So let me, here's, here's maybe the start of a blueprint of, of loving our neighbor as ourselves. Knowing God's place and purpose helps us to see who those neighbors for us are and, and the practical love that we show for them finds an outlet in that situation. But I, don't, I don't think it stops there. I think part of loving others is knowing what others' sense of purpose is, and I th I'm thinking of that in the context of us here. Part of loving others is knowing what their purpose is. It's knowing what their giftings are. It's knowing where God has called them to be a blessing to others. Remember, we're, we're all on this, in this together. We're all one in Christ Jesus. We don't operate in lots of little individual silos. So knowing those things about each other enables us to respect and rejoice in one another's calling. You see, we all have a collective responsibility to love our neighbor as ourselves, to meet the needs of others and to champion fairness. And as we are all part of the body of Christ, we have a collective privilege and obligation to be involved, not just in doing that individually, but to be involved with each other to do that collectively, to do that together. And a great example has been what we've heard today. We have a connection with work in India. Maybe none of us will ever physically be there and do that, but we can connect through prayer because we've taken time to be interested, because we've taken time to see what is the situation requiring need over there. We're effectively embarking and getting involved in Melissa's calling, aren't we? We're being concerned, and that's how we do that, one for another. We pray for each other. We're concerned for each other. We support each other, all in those different situations as the aim is to love our neighbor as ourselves. A last thing to look at today, a last bit of advice from the ever-practical James in our desire to replace favoritism with fairness is the word mercy. Mercy. Favoritism really is overcome by showing mercy. At the end of that passage we read, there will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. 
And the starting point, again, as we said at the beginning, is to recognize our ongoing need for mercy. Each day, despite our best intentions, we fall short. We fail, we get things wrong. We're in constant, constant need of God's mercy in our lives. And with that in mind, then, our subsequent obedience in showing mercy is in response to the mercy that we receive. So it is a bit odd, but the more we recognize how much we need it, then the more we're likely to uh, respond according to that because of the value that we place and the mercy God has shown to us. Jesus, in his earthly ministry, in his teaching, taught that it's the merciful who will obtain mercy. I think it's important to state that our, our mercy doesn't actually earn us mercy from God, but rather our mercy towards others is evidence of Christ living in us. It's a demonstration of us growing in Christ-likeness. So mercy then is the attitude that we should adopt as opposed to judgment. Mercy is the lens that we should be looking at situations in life through. Mercy is about others as opposed to self. Mercy is compassionate and prompts us to help others. Mercy is the motivation to be kind when others aren't. Mercy enables us to love others, including our enemies. Mercy treats others equally, even if we aren't being treated the same way. Mercy is the outworking of a heart being transformed by Jesus. James comes back to the subject of mercy and of favoritism later in chapter 3, whenever he summarizes what true wisdom is all about. He says, but the wisdom from above is first of all pure. It's also peace-loving, gentle at all times, and willing to yield to others. It is full of mercy and good deeds. It shows no favoritism and is always sincere. So as ever in this chapter, James doesn't, pull it, doesn't hold back his punches, does he? He is very clear. He is very direct. But the motivation is growing in Christ-likeness. He's not speaking with a sort of condemnatory tone. Dear brothers and sisters, he's saying, we're in this together. We've embarked on this journey. Look what Jesus did. Look at the difference that makes in your life. And with that in mind, with that in mind, how do you step out in growth in Christ-likeness? How do you step out in the situation, in the everyday routine that you find yourself in every day to live out the reality of that amazing grace that you have experienced? Mercy. Maybe the Holy Spirit is prompting you right now about some situation where you can evidence that a little bit more. Loving your neighbor as yourself. Maybe it's just trying to find out a little bit more about what other people are up to and really proactively, intentionally committing to be involved with them too, to praying with them and for them. Or the poor. I think as, as central, we genuinely have a heart for those who are um, marginalized. Where can we find ourselves more involved in that? 
So why don't we just take a moment now just to respond in, in quietness. We prayed at the start, Lord, what, what do you want to say to me? What do you want me to do as a result of meeting with you today? Father, we know you are the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the awesome and mighty one. And Father, we know too that by your spirit you're here with each one of us, knowing us by name, knowing everything about us, continually desiring ongoing relationship with us, continually wanting to see us grow in Christ-likeness, continually wanting to use us in everyday situations in life. And Father, we can do nothing but thank you for that. So we come in gratitude, we come in amazement, we come in worship. And we come to wanting you to move within us individually and collectively. Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for your desire to speak into each of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.